Judges chapter 13. So let us pay close attention to this because this is God's word to us. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent to us uh, who you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to see me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, Now when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life and what is his mission? And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink or eat any unclean thing. All that I commanded her, let her observe. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, If you detain me, I will not eat of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was, an angel, was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name, so that when your words come true, we may honor you? And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, 
we shall surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, if the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands, or shown us all these things, or now announced to us such things as these. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanadan, between Zorah and Eshtael. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. So, boys and girls, a couple of questions that you can be thinking about as we go through the sermon, but also families you may want to take up today at lunch. Number one is this. How do you see a lack of faith in the life of Manoah, who is Samson's dad? And how do you see faith in the life of Samson's mom, who is Manoah's wife, but doesn't receive a name in the passage? Secondly, what is the vow of a Nazarite? We'll answer those questions as we proceed, but they'd be good discussion topics uh, over lunch or dinner or uh, at some convenient time. We're entering our final lap in the book of Judges, which will take us through this Sunday and the next two through the narrative of Samson. And as I already mentioned, Samson receives the most attention in the book of Judges. The most space is dedicated to him as a judge. He's also the last judge presented in the book. The book will go on for a little bit longer and tell a few more stories, but no other judge is raised after uh, Samson. And the rest of the material is a bit mature, so we'll close out our consideration of the book of Judges uh, with Samson. Now, that being said, it can be a bit, little bit misleading because most uh, theologians consider Samuel to be the last person who held the office of judge. But Samuel's story is taken up in the book that bears his name. And so Samson is the last judge in Judges, but Samuel is really uh, the last judge in Scripture. And we note that as we've moved along, we've, we've noted all along the judges' cycle, the cycle of falling into uh, sin and idolatry and suffering under a foreign oppressor and then crying out to God and God delivering Israel. And then sometime in that peace and prosperity, once they've been delivered, Israel returns to idolatry. But we have to note as well that that cycle is changing as we move along. Israel is moving further and further from God, and as a result, uh, the cycle is changing a bit. I don't know if you noticed as we went through, but right at the outset, something significant is missing at the beginning of the chapter. We see that the people are under the oppression of the Philistines. But what does Israel not do? They don't cry out to God. It's almost as if they've forgotten who to cry out to or who will ultimately save them. It's a picture of the people moving further and further uh, from God. And yet, uh, as well, in terms of the narrative changing or the judge's cycle changing, Samson is the first and only judge to be heralded before his birth. Well, at least in the book of Judges, Samuel will be as well. So it's this auspicious beginning, and it gives the reader kind of a signal that great things are about to happen, kind of a great expectation regarding this particular judge. Whether or not that will be filled out or not will remain to be seen. And so we have this, this birth narrative, and what are we supposed to make of the story of Samson's parents, Manoah right, and his wife and the angel of the Lord appearing to, him, to them? 
Well, really the main thrust, which we started to touch on and things like the children's lesson is this, that the further you are from God, the more inclined you will be to manipulate God and others. And the closer you are to God, the more inclined you will be to love God and others. How is this going to play out? Well, really, we're just going to consider the two characters this morning. Number one, we're going to consider the husband's folly, Manoah's folly. And secondly, we're going to consider the wife's grace. How do we see Manoah's folly? Well, the angel of the Lord has preferred Manoah's wife all along. He appears to her first, and even when Manoah prays that the, uh, the representative of the Lord, the man who had come, would come again, he comes again, but he shows up again to Manoah's wife, so that Manoah's wife has to run and get Manoah and bring him to the man. And of course, we see, and we'll consider a little bit more in detail down the road, is that Manoah's wife has a much more appropriate response to the man of the Lord or the angel of the Lord than Manoah does. Uh, but we need to note that there's a, a really strong uh, presence of women in the book of Judges. Right? Really, the women who are presented as characters, we're thinking of Deborah, Jael, and the mother of Samson, right? are, are presented as people who are closer to God. And it's a critique uh, in some ways, on the male leadership of Israel, who have abdicated their responsibility, who have continued to move towards idolatry. Manoah and Samson, neither will be presented in very good lights in the books, book of Judges. And yet it's Manoah's uh, wife who actually has the proper response. And one of the reasons for that is that Manoah's wife can see what's happening because she has eyes of faith, and Manoah's blind uh, because he lacks those same eyes of faith. How do we see his blindness? Well, Manoah's wife had already identified the man who has come uh, from the Lord, right? He's shown up again to her, and she's run and brought Manoah to him in particular. And yet Manoah still says, are you the man who spoke to this woman? Clearly not having any degree of confidence in his wife's testimony and being unsure of who he is speaking to, even though his wife, upon meeting him, knew that it was a representative of the Lord. In fact, Manoah's wife had described him in verse 6 this way. You can look there. A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. So this is how the man appears, but Manoah is spiritually blind. He cannot see the man as Manoah's wife has seen the man, and therefore he doesn't really know what's at stake. Um, in fact, it'll say in a few verses from where we are now that he still didn't recognize the angel of the Lord. And so he's in this situation where a bold promise has been spoken to his wife about the future of their child. And yet Manoah is actually is going to move into a place where he tries to manipulate the angel of the Lord. He's going to try to um, gain some leverage in this relationship. Now, how do we see Manoah looking for some, relation, uh, uh, some leverage? In verse 15, he asks the man, why don't you stay for dinner? Now, this might seem inconsequential, but in the ancient world, hospitality was an act that incurred debt. If I ask you to stay at my house for, we're going to roast a goat, and you may enjoy that hospitality, well, in a certain sense, you owe me because you've enjoyed my hospitality. Uh, Manoah was seeking a certain degree of leverage over the angel of the Lord. 
Now, the angel of the Lord is going to drop several hints along the way, and one that comes right now, he says, no, I'm not going to eat with you, but if you actually wanted to make a sacrifice to the Lord, that would be more appropriate because of who you're standing in the midst of. Manoah is not quick on the uptake. And in verse 17, he again will try to take a degree of control of the relationship when he asks the man's name. In the ancient world, to know someone's name was at the very least to to be engaged in a peer-to-peer relationship. And in some places in the ancient world, it was thought to actually have the potential to exercise power over an individual. You see this a little bit in the story of Jacob in Genesis when he wrestles with God all night. And he says, I'm not going to let you go until what? Until you tell me your name. Right? That's the same kind of notion that's going on. And the man replies, why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? And the gist there is that uh, it's, my name is too wonderful to be known, too wonderful to be spoken. It's not something that's accessible to you. And still Manoah has not put the pieces together. Right? He's still trying to control the angel of the Lord. If he had put things together, he would have known that his questions were misplaced. So what do we have at this point? We have a picture of a man of Israel who's forgotten what it means to be an Israelite. And even though he's standing face to face with an angel of the Lord who, the, who his wife has recognized and identified, right? he does not believe that the promises are set. He does not have any confidence in the Lord. And so he says, well, if this person does have some power or authority, why don't I try to be in my most powerful place with him? That I would have uh, an upper hand, so to speak, in this relationship. Maybe he does have something to give. So I want him to be in my debt by virtue of my hospitality, and I want him to know that we're peers by virtue of me knowing his name. So we see a picture of a man who's seeking because he's so distant from God and unbeknownst to him really what's going on. He simply tries to manipulate the situation and is in effect manipulating God to try to see the outcome that he wants come to pass. And this is something that I think is a basic truth of the Christian life, that the further we move away from God, the more prone we are to relate to him in inappropriate ways, particularly to manipulate him into doing what we hope that he will do. And there are a couple of examples. I thought of one example from marriage. Marriage is always a good uh, place to go or a good lens through which to look to understand our relationship with God because God says our marriage is supposed to be something that represents to the world the relationship between Christ and the church. And then there's another example from Scripture. But here's the example from marriage. As a pastor, I had lots of opportunity to engage in marriage counseling, and I worked with a couple who we'll call Mike and Marcy. And Mike and Marcy at the time were not in a good place, very healthy, and they both were struggling with manipulation of God and manipulation of one another because they had moved far away from actually seeking salvation and uh, fulfillment in God himself. Mike loved fun. He loved pleasure. He didn't do pain, didn't do sadness. Right? So he loved to go on adventures, one adventure after another. He loved to buy new toys. He loved to engage uh, in various drugs and alcohol. Anything that was, seemed fun and exciting, that's the direction that he would go. Well, you can imagine that Marcy didn't particularly like that. And she didn't like it not only because it wasn't healthy, but she didn't like it because she was really unhealthily attached to Mike. 
Right? She saw really everything she needed coming from Mike and tried to latch on to him. And so when Mike wasn't there, checking out through adventure, checking out through drugs, she would get really frustrated and then be really hard on Mike. And of course, remember, Mike doesn't do pain or uh, distress in a relational context, and so he would feel the need all the more to hit an eject button and to try to escape. And so what do you do when you're in this conflict, this state of distress, and you try to manage it? Well, if you try to manage it in an unhealthy way, you're going to be prone to, to try to manage one another or to manipulate one another. And so Mike would go and buy some lavish gift uh, for Marcy and bestow that upon her. And he thought, this will buy me freedom to go and engage what I want to do. It will satisfy her and make her acquiesce. And then I can go and have my fun and she'll be happy. And Marcy would manipulate Mike and say, things aren't going well, you're off the rails and perhaps you know, withhold certain fruits of marriage. And as a result, try to manipulate Mike into the behavior that she wanted him to adhere to. And you can imagine this spiral was going uh, nowhere good. As they tried to manipulate one another, they weren't actually acting out of love or the good, a love that would say, I'm seeking the best for my spouse. They were operating out of a place of broken love in which they were trying to get what they felt like they needed. Mike needed freedom to pursue pleasure, Marcy needed Mike to be very present and a stable, uh, a stable person in her life. I'll come back to that, but that's just one example uh, for you to begin to think, well, okay, maybe that's happening in my marriage. Maybe I do that to some extent. But really, the bigger question is, how do we do that with God? And a biblical example of somebody who's trying to manipulate God, a great example is from Acts 5, the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Now, Ananias and Sapphira, a married couple, they own some property. And it's early in the days of the church. The church is growing rapidly, and people are bringing, actually, proceeds of things that they're selling to the apostles to be distributed uh, in care for the poor and those who have less. And so Ananias and Sapphira sell their property, and they come to the apostles and say, hey, we've brought everything we have from the sale to give to you, which wasn't the case. They had actually kept a significant portion for themselves and had pretended to bring all of it. And Peter's response to Ananias is fascinating. Peter says in Acts 5, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man but to God. What did Ananias done? And what is Peter saying? He said, look, you own the land. It was yours. You could do anything you wanted with it. And even when you sold it, the money was yours, and you could do whatever you wanted with the money. But instead, you've come here, and because whether you're seeking to be an image in which we're all impressed with your generosity, or you've got some other game at stake, you've lied not to man, but to God. And we know that you're nothing uh, but artificial in this. See, Manoah pretends to be hospitable to try to affect the outcome he wants. Ananias tries to pretend to be generous to affect the outcome that he wants. And so the question to you is, how are you like Manoah? And how are you like Ananias? That in your relationship with God and relationship with others, you pretend to be something that you're not in order to affect a particular outcome.
you feign a certain righteousness or you pretend to be loving in a certain way. And it's really that you think, well, if I'm acting this way, certain benefits will result when really your heart isn't there at all and you're just pretending. This is the challenge to us uh, looking at Manoah and considering these various examples. Well, if we're always pretending to some extent and always prone to manipulation to some extent, where do we find freedom? How do we move beyond this in a way that draws us to, to Christ? Well, this is where we actually look at Manoah's wife and see the grace that's played out in her life and in the context of the story. Manoah's wife is barren. She can't have children. And in that state, she stands with a kind of a, a elevated group of women in the Old Testament. We're talking about Sarah and Hannah and now Manoah's wife. Because to be barren in Old Testament times was a big deal. First of all, you're going to be socially looked down upon. Something's wrong with you. Secondly, they're going to assume that you don't have the favor of the gods, because if you did, you would have a child. Thirdly, you're going to end up destitute, because there's no insurance. Right? When you grow older, if there's no one to take care of you, if you don't have a child, then you will live a life of extreme poverty. Right? This is why Scripture often speaks of the, the plight of the widow, right? particularly the widow who doesn't have anyone to care for her, uh, because there's no social policy that's going to care for them in that place of need. Now, Manoah and his wife, uh, surprisingly, we don't see them praying at all for a child. We don't see them seeking God as we do with other barren women in the Old Testament scriptures. And so in that, they're just like Israel. Israel's not crying for help, even though they've been under the thumb of the Philistines for 40 years. And Manoah and his wife are not asking to actually receive a child, which means that God simply in his grace, is entering the story to keep the train on the tracks. Right? If the train, by which I mean the, the story of God's redemption, which is hurtling towards the gospel and Jesus and the cross, was left to the reliability and faithfulness of the characters that we see in the Old Testament, the train would have crashed on the tracks a long time ago. But God in his complete grace, and how annoying, just constantly showing up over and over again for these people, but in love and mercy, and to keep the train on the tracks, God says, yes, I'm showing up. I'm going to give you the judge that you're not even asking for. I'm going to start to, prefer, to provide the rescue that you're not even seeking. And I'm going to do this through uh, providing you uh, with a Nazarite. And what is a Nazarite? Or what is the vow of a Nazarite? It comes up in number six. That's... Uh, part of the legal code, and it's a notion that someone can take a special vow that commits themselves, uh, him or herself, to God for a certain period of time. And so you would take a vow, and to show your sincerity in the vow, being a Nazarite involved a few commitments. No alcohol, you can't come into contact with anything dead, and you're going to grow your hair for the time of the vow. When the vow comes to its conclusion, you cut your hair, and you go to the temple, and you burn your hair as an offering to God. If you think about it, it's actually really a beautiful uh, display of commitment to the Lord, right? And it says, I'm not going to participate in anything that would cloud my mind and distract me from my commitment to the Lord. And I'm going to remember that I'm set apart, which is actually what the word Nazarite means, to be set apart, by not coming into contact with any dead thing. It's going to remind me of the holiness of God. 
right? And then to grow one's hair, it was just a, it was a public expression, right? An acknowledgement that I've taken this vow and I'm more serious about it than anything else at this time. And everyone can know about the vow that I've taken. We see Paul take the vow of a Nazarite in Acts 18, where he shows up at the temple and cuts his hair and makes an offering. We see hints that probably a number of people throughout Scripture took the vow of Nazarite. Some people think that Elijah and Elisha belong to a school of Nazaritic prophets. But there are only three people in Scripture who are named as Nazarites from birth. You know how we're there? Samson's a good guess. And then Samuel and then John the baptizer are all committed to God as Nazarites from birth. Now, it's a beautiful commitment, a beautiful expression, if you keep the rules. Right? The vow is supposed to be something that demonstrates your commitment to God. But I want you to remember the rules as we move forward over the next couple weeks. Remember, no alcohol, don't touch dead things, and don't cut your hair. Boys and girls, can you guess how many Samson violates? Is he going to drink? Yep, three. He's going to come into contact with dead things, and he's going to have his hair cut. And so it leaves Israel. You know, you, the Samson story is fascinating because you start with this thing that kind of hasn't happened so far in the history of Israel. This proclamation of one who is being born as a rescuer who hasn't come yet. Right? It's a foreshadowing of what's going to happen with Mary and Jesus. But by the time you get to the middle of the story, you realize Samson could hardly be a bigger failure. He's messed the whole thing up. And so if you're Israel, you're like, where is the story going? Like if it's not going to be the one who's chosen from before birth and set aside as a Nazarite in the womb, then who in the world is going to deliver us? We're, we're never going to be delivered. Unless we have a Nazarite who actually uh, can keep their promises. Do you know, uh, most people consider Jesus to have taken a Nazaritic vow? Can you think of one? It's in the upper room at the Last Supper. When Jesus is talking and, and sharing, right, the meal and the wine with his apostles and instructing them in the supper. But he says, towards the end, he says, listen, I'm not going to drink again of the fruit of the vine until you're gathered with me in my Father's house. Most people think that's a representative of a Nazaritic vow that Jesus commits himself to this, uh, I'm not going to participate in the fruit of the vine. I'm not going to have a drink until you sit down to the table and drink with me. And so finally, we have a Nazarite who will actually keep, uh, be faithful to the vows taken, right? It's demonstrated in the cross. What difference does this make? Well, it would make all the difference in the world. If, if Manoah knows what we know in light of the cross, right, he would have known that God was utterly for him in Israel and loved them even though he allowed them to go through difficult periods. And Manoah wouldn't have needed to try to manipulate the angel of the Lord to get the story that he wanted because if he believed confidently in the love of God, he would have utterly trusted in the story that God was writing for him. And so he wouldn't have had to ask questions like, what's your name? He simply would have worshipped because he would have recognized because he would have had eyes of faith. And how would it have made a difference for Ananias? He could have been generous. He doesn't have to find 
Ananias at some level in his mind and heart is saying, salvation for me is having money. And he wouldn't need to say that. If he knew that God loved him and would provide for him, then he could have been free with that money, given it to the church, or held it back, but he would have been honest. He wouldn't have needed to pretend because he would have known that God loves him. And Mike and Marcy could have loved each other well as a result of knowing this uh, too. And indeed they did. Over a number of years and all kinds of different help, uh, Mike started to realize that he needed to know who Jesus was, not simply as the bringer of joy. And of course, of course, Mike was always misinterpreting the notion of joy. But he realized, I need to know Jesus not simply as the bringer of joy, but as the man of sorrows. If I'm going to be serious about being loved by the Savior and finding salvation in him, then what does it mean for me to pick up my cross? That's something that Mike was not interested in at all. And Marcy came to the place, right? She, the gospel worked its way into her heart, of surrendering control. I said, you know what? My salvation doesn't come from Mike. It comes from Jesus. And so if I'm turning to Jesus, then I realize I don't need to be in control of Mike. Mike's story is, gonna, is going to play out, and Mike's got to be responsible uh, for Mike and his relationship to God. And as they found salvation not in each other or what they thought they needed from each other and were trying to manipulate each other to get, they were able to actually really be saved. And once one is really saved, then there's no need to manipulate right? because every need is met. Every ultimate fear is bound up and we are delivered. Jesus' vow that he will not drink from the fruit of the vine until you sit down with him, that's a promise that whatever twists and turns your story goes through, whatever highs and lows, he's not going to celebrate until he brings it to its proper conclusion. And that, friends, is exactly what we celebrate as we come to the table this morning. Let's pray. Father, we, we confess that we are much like Manoah and Ananias and Mike and Marcy, that we would uh, be inclined to manipulate you when we can or when we think we can. And two, to manipulate each other. Goodness, uh, we are desperately hungry and thirsty for love and attention and meaning and purpose. And heaven help us when we find it in the wrong place. We thank you that you uh, have been so committed to bringing uh, the story to its proper conclusion of resurrection and redemption, uh, that you have not let it wander too far, and nor do you let our stories wander too far. So we praise you this morning. We praise you that you wait for us to dine with you, and even as you have instructed us to dine in remembrance of you, we remember just that, that you have taken a vow to bring all things to their proper conclusion. And we find rest and peace in that and pray that your spirit would lead us all the more in that direction. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.